Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Mewa Podcast. In this episode, we present the third and final part of Rosemary Krill's lecture, The Cotton Road. The talk was given as part of the Mewa Textile Symposium and was recorded live on October 24, 2007. In part three, Rosemary Krill will look at Indian muslins and the fine cashmere shawls that were worn with them. These were the next great fashion to be based on Indian exports to Europe. After the conclusion of her talk, Rosemary Krill takes questions from the audience. Although chintz came to its end um, at the end of the 18th century, it really was the beginning of a trend towards a lighter, uh, less formal way of dressing. And that continued not so much uh, with uh, any more uh, printed imports, but with a completely different style of thing, which was a combination of Bengali muslin and Kashmiri shawls. Uh, which continued that sort of theme of informality and uh, soft fabrics. Now, just quickly to um, say a bit about muslin, uh, which is just just another name for very fine uh, cotton. Bengali cotton had been used in Britain since the early 18th century, but not as whole garments, mostly as um, neck pieces, caps, aprons, neckerchiefs, and trimmings. But by about 1760, it was starting to be made into dresses. Now, of course, if you were a British woman in India, you were already wearing muslin dresses. In fact, they they complain as soon as the hot weather comes, they're sort of condemned to six months of white muslin, as one lady put it. Um, And so that trend um, fitted in very well with a sort of new uh, appreciation of the classical period, the ancient Greek and Roman period, because this is all part of what we now call neoclassicism, part of the, part of the appeal of a muslin dress was that, it, was that it looked like a Greek or Roman draped uh, sculpture. You looked like a marble effigy, you know, in your wonderful draping uh, muslin. And the style of dress also was very um, suitable to a fabric like this. And in the 1790s uh, and around 1800, the waistline became much higher, what we now call the Empire Line. This happened in, in, in France. Um, and it was made popular by French sort of trendsetters like the Empress Josephine, who you see here on the right, uh, Napoleon's wife, and famous beauties like Madame Recamier, and people in England like Emma Hamilton, um, Admiral Nelson's famous uh, mistress. Now, Bengali muslin could not be replicated in anywhere else, not just because it was only grown in Bengal, but because it was so fine that no one else knew how to spin it. Only the Bengalis could spin it. So it was really the spinning process that was the special thing about it. I mean, the weaving, I mean, it was difficult because it was so fine, but it was really the spinning that no machine could do. And this also follows on from what I was saying about the Industrial Revolution. It was partly in order to um, find a way of spinning Indian cotton that all these, you know, Mr. Arkwright and all these people in the 1770s were developing spinning machines. It was so that they could, they could spin the stuff themselves. Now, the perfect accompaniment to a soft white muslin dress was a cashmere shawl because it sort of continued that wonderful trend of just draping something around your shoulders. And uh, here on the on the left, it's uh, just a, a muslin dress and a, a cashmere shawl 
uh, from the V&A, and on the right, uh, a painting of the Empress Josephine in a rather sort of cleverly got-up dress made of two cashmere shawls, probably not even cut, just sort of pinned together at the shoulders and um, tied around around the waist. And they've got these sort of long, um, what's called botes, these long... Uh, floral borders. You can see a shorter one here. And this is something that evolved purely for the, um, for the, Western, for the Western market. In India, uh, shawls were quite different. They were, they'd been popular in India certainly since Akbar's time, probably hundreds of years before that. But the shawl as a sort of fashion statement or a design thing really came into prominence under the Mughal um, Emperor Akbar and around the beginning, very beginning of the 17th century. And here you can see all these splendid chaps sitting uh, swathed in their shawls. And um, you can't see from this sh uh, slide, but if you look at paintings like this, they're all plain shawls, just with a very little patterned border, not like these great elaborate things that became uh, popular in, in Britain. They started to be worn by um, fashionable ladies in England in around the 1760s when British uh, administrators started to bring them back because they were very soft and, and beautiful. Lord Clive, for example, brought back 10 pairs of shawls when he left India in 1767. And the trend has spread to France as part of a sort of Anglomania that took place around the 1790s. And the Empress Josephine, who we just saw, um, was said to have three or four thousand cashmere shawls, including some worth 15 to 20,000 francs. And just to put that in perspective, the same account says you could buy a very pretty shawl for 600 francs. And so she had some worth 20,000. And she was meant to, you know, her dogs slept on them. And she, you know, she just used them several at a time. In Britain, um, this is the earliest picture I know of that shows cashmere shawls in use. But, of course, they're not in use really. They're just props. Um, this lady is Jane Baldwin, this painting by Joshua Reynolds, showing Jane Baldwin in Turkish dress. And so he's thrown in a couple of cashmere shawls. Well, you know, Indian, Turkish, what's the difference? So it's all part of just, you know, it's exotic it's very much like a little earlier when people were mixing up China, Japan, India as part of Shinwazari. This is, again, a sort of very generic, um, exotic dress uh, thing. But two very beautiful cashmere shawls, which probably belonged to Joshua Reynolds. This one with a sort of, uh, sort of rosebud sort of motif, not completely unlike that one. And this lovely yellow one, again, plain with a small floral border, rather like this one in um, a collection in, in India. So these are still very much the sort of things that were being used and worn in India. The, it hadn't yet become a, um, an export style. Uh, and it wasn't only very sort of fashionable people painted by Reynolds that wore cashmere shawls. This lady is Mrs. Hingiston, who was a, the wife of a country vicar in Suffolk. And she's wearing, um, well, we know exactly what she's wearing because amazingly the shawl has survived along with the picture. And they're both in the Gemelde Gallery in Berlin. I, I haven't managed to get a picture of the shawl, but the design is very much like the um, piece on the right in the V&A with these little sprigs. And that's dated 1788. So it was obviously something that wasn't yet just uh, purely for, for very sort of fashionable wear.
In France, however, only the sort of very grand ladies would, would wear shawls. Um, here's the Marquise de Sourcy in this fabulous painting by David. And she's wearing this sort of rather um, ostentatiously simple get-up, a bit like Marie Antoinette playing milkmaids. You know, she's sort of saying, look at me, how, how simply I dress, even though, you know, that shawl is probably one of the ones worth 20,000 francs like, um, like the Empress Josephine had. So it's all part of this wonderful sort of s simple, elegant trend that was, of course, completely uh, a lie. Um, they were just dressing up. And here's the famous Madame Recamier. You must have seen that wonderful picture of her on the chaise longue. Here she is looking very demure. Uh, in this painting by Gerard. And I think she illustrates very well how cashmere shawls were used rather as Emma Hamilton used them in England as a sort of rather erotic um, uh, accoutrement to sort of drape yourself a bit. And, I mean, look at what she's wearing. As somebody, somebody said, she, she carried the fashion for Grecian undress to an extremity. <laughs> So, you know, she's sort of, she's not exactly covering herself up with her shawl. But that, again, is a very typical um, plain field. And you can see, if you can in the real picture, see that it's a sort of very small um, uh, border like this one um, that we have in the V&A and also like this one, also in the V&A, which um, belonged formerly to Tipu Sultan, who died in 1799. So, it, you know, it uh, works quite well uh, with, the, with the dates. Now, shawls here, they're so beautiful and simple and elegant. But as we saw with um, the Josephine picture, they, they started to become more uh, elaborate, great big floral borders to correspond with Western taste until we come to the mid-19th century. This picture on the left is called, Do You Want to Come Out With Me, Fido? I don't know if you can see Fido down there. As, um, as, as dress changed shape, so shawls had to as well if they were to survive. I mean, by the Victorian period, this wonderful, the Grecian undress of Madame Recamier or whatever had completely um, fallen by the wayside and the Victorians had brought in a much more tailored and sort of structured uh, way of dressing with a full skirt and a, a, a tight uh, bodice. And so the shawls became long to sort of give a, a profile to this um, very wide, very wide skirt. This came into fashion in about the 1830s, so it's quite surprising that this picture of 1859, this obviously fashionable lady is still dressed very much in that style. And these were long, heavy shawls that were sometimes called carpet shawls, which gives you a, a, an idea of the sort of density of them. And I don't know if you can see, but they they do still have long bottes of the type that were around at the beginning of the 19th century. But they've now taken up the whole shawl, just leaving this tiny field, whereas before, in the earlier shawls, the field would have taken up nine-tenths of the whole, the whole piece. And some, um, obviously, these designs were made in Kashmir only for the Western market. And some, um, one observer remarks how awful it is that the designs are even being taken from wallpaper catalogues. So the, the sort of um, the sense of um, creating new shawls in Kashmir had completely 
um, gone by that time. Now, just like the chintzes, uh, imitations of the Indian shawls were being made in Europe very soon after they started to arrive. I mean, there were, uh, imitation shawls were being made in Edinburgh as early as 1792. And when you consider that the first ones only arrived in Britain in sort of 1770 or so, that's rather amazing. And Norwich took to um, weaving shawls in 1803, Paisley, of course, which gave its name to this whole Paisley motif, introduced the jacquard loom in the 1830s. And so that meant that uh, patterns were, could be woven incredibly fast. And so that more or less you know, meant that the, the Indian shawl imports were, were over. Paisley just sort of churned out imitation shawls. But... Of course, this meant that they were too commonplace, too cheap, and so no person of fashion would, would ever want to be seen dead in one. So they became deeply unfashionable, and I think this lady on the left more or less epitomizes that, that uh, unfashionability. Here she is. She's obviously Welsh, um, which is probably you know, the least fashionable of all. Um, and she's wearing this extraordinary shawl, probably, I mean, the painting was done in 1908, but the shawl looks as if it would probably dates from about 1860. So maybe this is something she had when she was a glamorous young thing in, you know, f 40 or 50 years earlier, and she's still proudly wearing it to, um, to church. So, like, like chintzes, the, um, the success, if you like, of, of, the, of the style and the fashion more or less spelled its end because technology changed to answer the need or the desire for those things and it just flooded, flooded the market and the whole desire for them um, went away. So I think that's probably better, better stop. Uh, but that, I think, is... We've brought it up to 1908 and I think that's as far as we're going to go. Thank you very much. Yes, so um, do, if anyone would like to ask a question. Yes, lady in the front row. Um, the question was, if we go to the Victorian Albert Museum, are those textiles on display? Some of them are, yes. Um, you would see probably ten of the chintzes and five cashmere shawls and a couple of the Indonesian market pieces, yeah. Yes. Are there, is there influence of Sasanian patterns making their way to India? Um, well, that would have all happened very early on, as it were. And you do get, yes, the, I just briefly mentioned things that have survived in Tibet. Um, there are some silk textiles of probably about the 12th century, which seem to be made in India and have those big round designs. Not quite the Sasanian style with those amazing creatures in but which yeah which may come from a a similar um aesthetic a sort of central asian thing well we don't know exactly but the sort of 12th 13th century yeah and also you see on you see those textiles painted on the ceilings of monasteries in places like ladakh so you know that's uh, is evidence of the the trade to kashmir and those those places so it's very much a Central Asian um, aesthetic. Yes? I'm wondering, was uh, cotton brought to 
India to be woven. Did that happen? Yeah. At what time did that happen? Yeah, once they'd once they'd cracked the the spinning. Well, it came in phases. Yes, I mean to begin with, they had to import woven cloth. Then when they'd um, got better at the the weaving mechanism, then they would import uh, yarn. And it was only when, which would then be woven in places like Manchester. And then the next stage was that they perfected the spinning in Europe and so they were able to bring in um, un, unspun Indian cotton. And that's when, you know, this was awful for the Indian weavers um, because their main market had, had, had dried up. And also at that time, the American cotton fields started to be producing as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that that isn't what I would call chintz. I think that's that's that that's the 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 usage that is now current. Their, their, their stuff is printed. William Morris did, did block printing and with floral designs. And so that, he, he was interested in Indian designs. I mean, that really started in, at the Great Exhibition in 1851, uh, Indian cloths were displayed in London and people like Ruskin and Morris were saying, you know, these are the most perfect forms of textile design ever and so people like Morris and his associates did take up that type of that type of pattern but they were mostly printing it uh, hmm. yes yeah, sorry, uh, my first question is um, 13th century India when the Mughals came um, the Muslims came in how did that affect the tribal weaving system and how did you see any atmosphere change noticeable and second question you mentioned the fact that most of the remnants that you have were saved through the prohibition period. Why do you think that happened? Mm. And my third question is, <laughs> why wasn't the appetite for the Western civilization, for Western European, that seemed to be very Eurocentric, that actors were sent back? What did the Dutch East India Company do to first get the appetite wet with the Indian patterns? And why did they switch back to European Right, okay. First, when the, when the Muslims came into India, how did that affect local weaving? Well, the Muslims started to come into India around 1000 AD. I mean, people, Muslims had been coming in um, from Afghanistan, you know, Mahmud of Ghazni and all that um, around the 11th century. Um, and so that, they had a, a big effect on, on dress, partly. Um, but I think perhaps more what you're talking about is, for example, the Mughal period and the designs and so on. I mean, then, you know, they had their, I think the whole Islamic aesthetic coming into India was a huge change, you know, in architecture, in painting, in textile design or whatever. And so you do get a huge influx of different types of things coming in. Although having said that, I mean, what we think of as Islamic design, for example, you know, geometric or floral or whatever, I mean, was there in certain forms in India already. So I think 
it just um, formalized it, as it were. I mean, when you get the mogul workshops, they were so uh, organized and they had so much money that it, it made a much more developed industry. I mean, before there would have been, I mean, you did have your little sultanates or whatever or your little kingdoms, which obviously would have commissioned cloth. But with the moguls, you're really talking about a huge influx of skill and money and organization. So I think that probably beefed up the um, influence of, of the designs that they wanted, which were more Iranian, a bit more Western by that time, by the 17th century. So I think it's, it's largely a question of, of patronage and money that the, the Muslims brought in. But having said that also, the looms developed in order to um, accommodate these more complex designs. I mean, a lot of, when you look at, for example, South Indian uh, textiles now, they tend to be more checks, more stripes, more squares, because they've had less of that Islamic influence. Northern Indian stuff often tends to be much more floral with all these sort of botes and meanders. And so the, the looms in North India actually evolved at a faster rate to accommodate those sort of curvy linear patterns rather than checked ones. And you still find that today as a sort of contrast between North and South India. What was your second? Oh, it's a mystery. I mean, we do have some pieces from the pre-prohibition era, that is pre-1700, like, for example, that one with the Stuart coat of arms, and maybe some of them are a little bit before 1700. But I think it's, it's mostly because they were, they were treasured. Um, and so they, they were taken care of. They were kept, you know, if you had one, you knew it was special and you, you shouldn't have it. It was hidden, a bit like the things that were stored in Indonesia up in the rafters sort of thing that have survived. I think, you know, they were, they were not in, in common use, and so they were um, not, not used to destruction as so, so many other clothes were. But, it, it, yeah, I mean, it is a puzzle. Yes? When was India have started modern-dying reds? Well, we know it happened in Mohenjo-daro. So 2000 BC, maybe before. You know, that's the first we know. So at Mohenjo-daro, did they practice, do you think, um, embroidery? Well, why not? I mean, they've, uh, the question was, did they practice embroidery at Mohenjo-daro? Um, no reason why not. They found needles. We have that little priest figure with the patterns. You know, he can, that could be printed, it could be embroidered. But no reason why they, sh why they shouldn't have done embroidery. Mm. Oh, yes. Mm. Um, they didn't have because Japan was a very closed uh, ec economy. You know, it wasn't tr trading very much with outside neighbors, as it were. Um, things did tend to get to them through the Dutch and and other trading companies, but there wasn't that big. Um, uh, sort of fashion for chintz. What you do find, I mean, that that um, garment is is a very unusual one. What you do find is pieces of Indian chintz and Indian ikat used um, for things like tea ceremony, um, like bags for tea bowls, and um, little sort of uh, containers for tea whisks and things like that. So it was obviously considered quite special. 
but it only came in in, in small amounts and didn't seem to have, um, you know, it didn't, people didn't want to use it for um, interiors or everyday wear. They just used it in little, little things. I think that's all. <laughs> You've been listening to the third and final part of The Cotton Road. Rosemary's lecture was recorded live at the Maywell Textile Symposium on October 24, 2007. For more information on Maywell or our podcasts, please visit our website at www.maywell.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.